Disraeli, uh, and welcome to another edition of the Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. Um, and we're here today to talk about infrastructure policy um, with Steve Martinko. Uh, so, Steve, uh, why don't you just kick off with a little bit about your background and uh, what you're doing uh, in infrastructure? Yeah, thank you, Disraeli. Appreciate you having me here today. Um, I lead the transportation infrastructure policy practice at Kano Gates, which is a global law firm. And I've spent my entire career working in transportation. Uh, I spent 13 years working in Congress, nine of those years for Bill Schuster, who's a Republican from Pennsylvania and is the chairman of the House Transportation Infrastructure Committee. Uh, I then was the executive director of the Port of Pittsburgh Commission, where I led efforts to support locks, dams, and water infrastructure in the Pittsburgh region. And then I joined our, our law firm, where I support clients who have interests in just about every mode of infrastructure, from aviation to surface to uh, United unmanned aircraft systems and the intersection between transportation and technology. Yeah, so you say the state of our infrastructure could be better. That's that's a good way to put it. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of issues, but uh, like most things, at the end of the day, it, it tends to boil down to funding. So, and funding, I think, is a you know a good point. When you think of infrastructure, you think of it has separate pools. You think of you know the highway fund. You think of you know airport fund. Maybe there's a water fund. Why have you know you worked? You said you know 13 years in Congress, nine years for a chairman. You know, very powerful chairman. In fact, why do you think it's funded that way? Why hasn't Congress looked at infrastructure holistically instead of these individual buckets that have to be built on top of each other? Yeah, and that's that's a really good question. I think I'll, I'll approach it a couple different ways. And um, you know, if you look historically, the United States built a lot of our infrastructure in the 1950s and the 1960s, and we were the the envy of the world when it came to infrastructure. And it was a significant component of why the United States was able to become an economic superpower. And you know, we didn't make the investments that we needed to make to maintain that infrastructure. And you know, frankly, doing maintenance work isn't isn't as interesting as, as doing doing the, the work of building new infrastructure, but it, it can be just as important. Um, why are different programs funded differently? You know, some of that is evolutionary. Um, you know, the way that Congress works or the way that a committee structure functions or the way that legislation takes place. Uh, and and why why is it hard to, to come up with the money? Why is it challenging? Well, you know, it can be politically difficult to raise revenue and typically raising revenue comes from imposing fees or raising taxes. And those, those types of votes are difficult for members of Congress to make. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So let me ask, you know, President Trump, when he first got, you know, elected in 2016, you know, the fear of Democrats was that he was going to put this big, you know, trillion dollar infrastructure bill on the floor. There, there was no way they could vote no uh, and have them jammed up. You think he made a mistake not starting with infrastructure, starting with healthcare? Yeah, that, hindsight's always 2020, right? Um, yeah, it, it's hard to judge what the right or wrong decision is. Uh, you know, I certainly think that uh, tax reform is uh, something that Republicans have tried to accomplish here for, you know, going on decades. And so it's obviously a huge legislative accomplishment for the administration and for Republicans in Congress. And, you know, who's to say if they'd done infrastructure first, if tax reform could have happened? Um, you know, it's hard to second guess. Uh, I know that there are a number of folks in the infrastructure committee community who 
who would have liked to have seen infrastructure first out of the gate. Um, that being said, this is where we stand today. Um, you got to play the cards you dealt. And I think that the president can, you know, has an opportunity if he really exerts true leadership from the White House, puts his puts his shoulder into it um, to, to get what he wants and to move a large infrastructure bill. Yeah, so let's, let's walk down that path. You know, it seems like every month or so is infrastructure week. That's right. Um, it also seems that every time it's infrastructure week, there is some other major thing that swamps infrastructure. It's like week. infrastructure week has, has bad luck uh, connected to it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's uh, I take a communications class here at the McCourt School. And, and one of the things we talk about is how, you know, when, for example, when President Trump and team rolled out the budget, they, you know, smothered their own budget announcement two hours later. It was clear that they wanted the budget, you know, not, you know, covered. Why do you think you say, you know, it needs presidential leadership, but at the same time, you know, for every two seconds, it ends up being infrastructure week. There is no leadership. You know, do you think that's even possible or is the state of our infrastructure, you know, going to continually be, you know, a struggle, you know, 2018, 2019 uh, as we look forward? Yeah, I mean, so uh, doing big things in government is hard. Mm -hmm. Um you know, our founders set up the Constitution to make it difficult to pass laws. I think that sometimes that gets forgotten. Sometimes we blame partisanship for gridlock. Sometimes we blame external factors. But ultimately, making laws is is not supposed to be easy. Um, when it comes to infrastructure, uh, we're dealing with a president who is not um, a traditional president. He's doing things differently. Uh, he is unpredictable. And at times, being unpredictable has been effective for him. Uh, other times, it has been less effective. Uh, it, it's hard to prejudge how that's going to play out for infrastructure. Um, we know that for the first time in you know many years, whether it's Republican or a Democrat, we have a president who is making infrastructure at the top of his legislative agenda. He's put forward a, a robust plan, like it or love, like it, hate it, um, you know, indifferent. He put out a, a serious plan uh, to Congress. He's got his cabinet secretaries up on the Hill right now pushing that plan forward. Um, you know, whether he's stepping on his message or it's an effective message, every week is infrastructure week. And he is changing the conversation uh, and making this a priority. Um, so, you know, I think that that is a, a significant step forward. And whether that ends up happening this year in sort of the limited time window that Congress has, or it's something that takes um, you know, more than one year to get done, it, it's, a, it's certainly an extremely positive step in the right direction. And again, sort of to turn back to, to tax reform, that was, that was an effort many years in the making. It, it certainly didn't happen overnight. Um, and you know, the president has at least three more years in office, and if you ask him, seven. So you know, we're, we're optimistic that in, in that time frame, we're gonna see something get done. I think that's neat. And many of our listeners are international students or policy students, so they get to travel the world and see different things. Um, and when you think of like the state of our airports, for example, you would find, you know, everyone has said LaGuardia and JFK is a dump. You know, uh, Miami International is the worst airport in the country to fly <laughs> into uh, or out of, um, you know. Atlanta, you know, went through a power outage and I went, grew up in Atlanta and how do you have an entire airport to lose power? You know, it seems that our airports are a laughing stock at times. You know, what can be done to improve our, our airports, um, our roads, you know, uh, those types of big things that 
you know, was a generation ago what America was known for, you know, our, the roads, the infrastructure, the buildings, et cetera. Yeah, you know, so there's any number of things. And so I just want to touch on a couple that we haven't talked about. And uh, one of the things that I think is sort of interesting about the United States versus the rest of the world is that when you look at infrastructure in other countries, there's significant private investment. There's significant utilization of public-private partnerships or, or what are referred to as P3s. Uh, and that is a market that is, is very small in the United States. Um, there, there are reasons for that. Some of them are structural. We're one of the only countries in the world that has uh, subsidized municipal debt. Mm -hmm. um, our municipal debt is tax exempt, whereas the rest of the world uh, tends to use different structures, does not have that subsidization. Um, to address that issue, we've, we've created some tools to try and um, balance the, the cost differential between the, the public sector and the private sector. Those tools are fairly limited. Um, we've also got uh, some issues with just sort of um, cultural issues. And when it comes to private sector involvement in infrastructure, um, uh, when you look at healthcare, our hospitals in the United States are, are almost all private, and that's common practice. Whereas if you go to the UK, all of the hospitals are public. Right. Uh, and if you were to privatize a hospital, it would be a significant issue. But much of the infrastructure is private, and no one cares. Um, so there's some cultural issues to, to P3s that, that could be overcome here in the United States. Uh, and then there's... Um, ways to, to how do you get at that and so there's been a, a lot of talk recently uh, the administration uh, the trump administration and congress um, have looked at some ideas out of australia that have been very effective in um, in leveraging investment in their infrastructure one of those ideas is called asset recycling this was in 2014 the australian government set up a program where um, they incentivized their states to do transactions to do long-term leases to the private sector on their infrastructure assets. And they had a $20 billion program that ended up leveraging into $200 billion in infrastructure investment, where if a, if a state made a transaction with the private sector and, and decided to reinvest the proceeds of that transaction back into other infrastructure, the federal government would give them a 15% incentive payment to do that transaction. So for a fairly small amount of money from the federal government, they got fairly significant bang for that buck. Um, that's a, a really powerful concept that you know was clearly very successful in Australia and thus has generated a lot of attention in the United States um, and is something that you know I think could could work here. Yeah, I think I don't want to pick up on that privatization piece. You know, there was the mocked or, you know, an interesting part of, you know, the president's proposal about, you know, privatizing the FAA. Um, and then he nominate, wanted to nominate his pilot to be the FAA director. And then somebody told him, not so fast. Um, you know, do you think, you know, given the hostility at times and the interaction of the public, you know, which doesn't trust the government, public trust in the government's that historical lows, you know, but it doesn't necessarily trust the private sector either. Um, you know, how do you think that that could work in the, you know, era of public opinion, you know, which obviously could influence, you know, policymakers? Yeah, I, th I think that's a great question. And sort of you have to separate um, proposals like air traffic control reform or privatization, which is talking about sort of spinning off an entire sector of the FAA to, you know, a third party nonprofit entity versus a specific transaction like allowing for a long term lease of a airport in a midsize American city. Mm -hmm. um, 
And for the most part, uh, I don't think when folks go into or out of an airport, they spend a lot of time thinking about who runs this airport. Is it the state? Is it the county? Is it a airport board? Is it a municipal authority? You're really kind of thinking about, is this airport in good working condition? Is there a convenient store where I can buy something to eat or drink? Um, what are the conditions of the seating area? Is it a nice place to get a flight? Those are, those are more the concerns as opposed to who runs it. Um, and again, if you look at other places in the world, um, traditionally uh, one airport run by one city, they have experience running one airport in one city. Whereas a large private sector investor may have experience running 30 or 40 airports around the world. And based on that experience and based on that pool of capital they have, can, can do um, things that that one operator can't. And so uh, I think folks that have experienced that in other places, and Puerto Rico is an example in the United States where you know, a private sector operator came in and made some significant improvements and um, you know, support for that airport in, in Puerto Rico polls extremely well. Yeah, and so I think we, we've talked a lot about, you know, the federal role in, in infrastructure. We haven't really talked a little bit about, you know, state and local government, which you hinted at a little earlier. And we heard tonight, you know, 75 plus percent of the infrastructure spending happens at the state and local level. You know, what are some maybe one or two improvements that could happen locally and, and at the state level, um, you know, to improve our infrastructure and make it better, um, given the fact that each local and state municipality differs based on their own dynamics, but, you know, broadly. Yeah, and, and that's a great question. Um, I, you know, I think that the one of the proposals in the Trump administration's plan has gotten some criticism, and I think in some ways is a little bit misunderstood. Um, and that's that state and local governments have been doing quite a bit to step up to the plate when it comes to infrastructure. Uh, in many cases doing so because the federal government, you know, has not raised the gas tax on surface transportation since 1993. And so you've seen more than 25 states, you know, generate additional revenue for infrastructure improvements since 2013. But they've done so without receiving any type of incentive or any type of benefit from the federal government for that, you know, for lack of a better term, good behavior. Um, and so I think the, the Trump administration had an incentives proposal that um, sought to reward good behavior. If you're taking an action to generate re new, new additional revenue, the federal government should, should give you something on top of that because you've taken an action that's bringing more state and local money to the table. Uh, I think it's a valuable concept. Uh, you know, I don't know that the way it's specifically structured in that proposal is coming across as, as that type of program. I don't know that... Um, you know, maybe it's not perfect, but but that type of concept where if states and locals are stepping up to the plate, if they're doing more uh, to be rewarded by the federal government seems to make a lot of sense to me. All right. So here at GPPR, we have a theme every year. And this year, our theme is uncertainty. We're actually putting out our spring edition on April 5th. Uh, and so when you think of uncertainty and in infrastructure, what comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that would come to be, come to mind is the, the Highway Trust Fund. Uh, the Highway Trust Fund is the, the core program that funds surface transportation in the United States. Uh, and that's funded through a user fee on drivers, uh, gasoline tax. And that, that trust fund um, is currently on pace to be insolvent uh, within a couple of years in 2020. 
And uh, each year uh, that problem grows bigger and bigger. That delta between you know, how much the federal government spends annually and how much the federal government takes in annually um, gets bigger. And it does not take a math major to understand that when you spend more than you take in, uh, you have a structural problem. And there's significant uncertainty about how that will be resolved um, sometime in the next two years. And as we get nearer to that insolvency date, uh, it creates significant uncertainty for state departments of transportation. Uh, the federal program, the, the trust fund, uh, sends money to states via formula. Um, and those states need to plan their construction seasons and their projects. And as uh, they get nearer to that date, uh, when the fund will be out of money, they start to plan not to have money. And therefore they need to put projects on hold. Uh, they need to shorten up the construction season. They need to focus on smaller projects. And uh, essentially they have a great deal of uncertainty and it becomes a very significant issue that Congress will need to face here in the, the very near future. Lastly, I think, you know, you think of where we are in 2018 and, and innovation and technology is going to continue to run rampant. You hear automated cars on the roads. You see drones everywhere. You know, robots are being built. You know, I'm going to go talk about write a paper on cryptocurrency when we leave probably, here. Probably do a uh, robot podcast next time. We have talked about yeah. AI and, and several people on our podcast have said, you know, the biggest policy concern is the role of AI and robotics and the jobs that are going to go away yep. and how do you retrain those people? Um, it's another topic for another day. Yeah. But when you think of technology innovation in the infrastructure space, um, you know, I heard tonight about, you know, a, a, you know, vehicle mileage, you know, tax and looking at that, which I think is an interesting concept being that per diems are done based on mileage. Yep. So why can't you tax based on the same mileage that you're doing per diems on, um, you know? And so what are the, innovation technology type things that could come to the forefront in the next, you know, say three to five years that we should be looking at in the infrastructure area. Yeah, that's, that's an entirely another uh, podcast, but I think sort of the two uh, most talked about technologies when it comes to transportation space right now would be unmanned aircraft systems, UAS uh, drones, and then um, automated vehicles, AVs. Uh, and I think sort of the, the policy questions are myriad. There's, um, you know, a whole swath of issues from infrastructure to cybersecurity to impacts on jobs to impacts on urban planning. Um, but, you know, sort of the, the key issue to me uh, when I look at these things is uh, government needs to be flexible, um, trying to avoid technology, trying to make sure that, that policy prescriptions or policy solutions are technology neutral. Um, when you're looking at technology that's emerging so rapidly, developing so quickly, it's, it's almost impossible to predict what direction uh, autonomous vehicles might go in or, or what the next innovation in drones are. You want to have a regulatory framework that provides the flexibility for whatever that direction might be. Uh, doesn't mandate one specific technology prescription um, that you know could be out of date in a few years because you know the... We, we sort of already talked about the, the way that Congress works and how hard it is to pass laws. And likewise, the, the regulatory process or the rulemaking process at a federal agency can take years to, to implement. So um, you want to make sure that you've got it right and you want to make sure that it's flexible enough to accommodate 
um, sort of the speed of innovation. So, so that's sort of what I see. And, and I, I, I personally really like the direction that um, sort of Congress and, and the agencies have been taking in this space. I think they've been taking that approach and I think it's a thoughtful approach. Uh, and I think it's going to be extremely beneficial as, as more and more of these technologies come online. Yeah, so if Secretary Child gets to call you tomorrow and ask you for your top three ideas to change infrastructure and make it better, what would you tell them? Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, I, I think I just answered one of them in terms of how to handle innovation and technology uh, in this space. Um, she's doing a fantastic job on um, streamlining regulatory permitting. Um, you know, the time at time. The other day, time is money. Mm-hmm. And if it takes 10 years to build a road or to build a bridge um, because of bureaucratic red tape and, you know, unnecessary reviews, um, you're, you're holding back economic progress, you're holding back growth, and it's not for any good, right? There's certainly a need to protect the environment. Uh, we need to have the appropriate amount of reviews. Um, you shouldn't take any shortcuts that are going to protect, you know, necessary um uh, environmental processes, but you've got to get these things done faster. Um, so I think that'd be number two. And if I had the answer for the secretary on, on how to fund an infrastructure proposal, <laughs> um, I, I'd be a rich man. <laughs> yeah. Well, lastly, many of our listeners are policy make you know future policymakers, policy students, interested students who might get admitted in a couple of weeks. You know, what advice would you give you know expiring policymakers, either those interested in infrastructure or just in general, um, as we look to pursue you know and be the leaders in the next generation? Yeah, uh, well, you've already taken the first step if if you're at the McCord School, um, but it's it's get involved. Um, you know, I, I started my career with two internships on Capitol Hill. Uh, and I know just about everybody that I worked with when I was on Capitol Hill um, start at the bottom. We, we all started by getting, getting our foot in the door through an internship or through volunteering on a campaign or figuring out that, that this was the career path for us. When I was an undergrad, I did an internship at an investment bank. I did an internship at a consulting firm and I did an internship for my United States Senator. And I knew after about a week in the United States Senate that, that when I grew up, I wanted to work on Capitol Hill. Um, so it was getting that exposure and getting that experience that just fed sort of my passion for um, for politics and for policy and 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 I knew what I wanted to do um, and you know the way to to continue to grow is to build those relationships gain that expertise and there's no better place to do that than Washington D.C. Uh, and whether it's Congress or a nonprofit or a for-profit or lobbying or um, uh, Whatever the case may be, um, get in there and get your hands dirty. Well, perfect. Well, Steve, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for coming and enlightening us on infrastructure. I think our listeners will will get a lot out of it. And hopefully it'll be better soon instead of just being uncertain. So, again, appreciate it. Thank you very much, Israeli. Appreciate it, man. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of the GPPR podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more content from the Georgetown Public Policy Review, check out our website, at www.gppreview.com, our Twitter at GP Policy Review, or our Facebook GPP Review. Thank you.